Well, good morning. Since this is my first official Sunday as your senior pastor, we're going to start a series this morning entitled First Things. And first things are important to God, so much so that he listed them. And we're going to look at some of the first things found in Scripture, found in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. God, his word, sin, marriage, covenant, work, worship, and others. And today we're going to address the idea of God's preeminence, God being first. I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the very first book in the Bible. And we're going to read verses 1 through 5. Now we're going to read two passages today, one in Genesis 1 and also in Colossians chapter 1. So you might want to find Colossians 1 and put your finger there. Now I'm going to ask you to do something that I've been doing for quite a long time in worship settings, and it's to stand for the reading of God's word. Now you find this idea in Nehemiah chapter 8. When Ezra opened up the book, the people stood up out of honor and reverence for God. Now I was reminded this week that when he he opened the book, they stood up, but they also raised their hands to heaven, they also bowed low to the ground, and they also prostrated themselves and put their faces uh, to the ground in worship to God. But this morning, I'm just going to ask you to stand with me, all right? We're going to read Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. And now, Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15 These words speak of Jesus Christ. We'll read to verse 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And may God bless his word today, and let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you will open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it this day. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I brought uh, something this morning that before first service I had never shown to a group of people, except when I wore this 28 years ago. My my high school letterman's jacket. Now there's a reason I'm bringing this this morning, and interestingly I, I tried it on last night and it still fits. The snaps are a little, you want to see, I know, but uh, the snaps are a little bit tight 
But I was, I was like, wow, this is amazing. In fact, I actually found, and I didn't tell this the first hour, second hour will, most, will usually get a little extra. But I found a piece of paper that I actually left in here. It's a, it's a little scrap of paper from 1979. And it basically was, I must have been wearing this in uh, AP English in Dr. Mr. Bolander's class because uh, there was a note that I had thrown to a friend of mine that they threw back to me and we wrote a couple, and it's in here. If you want to see it, I'll show it to you later, all right? But the reason I brought this was because of a, a book, a book called I Am Third. Now, interestingly, I found this book on my shelf last night, and I noticed on the side it says, English department, Downey High School. So it is a good thing I'm not preaching on honesty or stealing or something like that today, okay? Or pride, because I told you I was in Mr. Bolander's AP English class. But the thing is, this is a book I read when I was, I I believe when I was a uh, a, a junior in in high school. It's called I Am Third, and it was by Gail Sayers, the famous running back of the Chicago Bears. Now this book... uh, was the, was the uh, inspiration behind the, the TV movie Brian's Song, which was about uh, Gail Sayers' relationship and friendship with Brian Piccolo, who was, uh, died of cancer, and he was on the Chicago Bears as well. Well, the title of the book came from a little saying that Gail Sayers got from his, from his college track coach. He was in his office once, and it, there was a placard that just said, I am third. And he asked him, what does it mean? And he said, the Lord is first. My friends are second, and I am third. And so Gail, who by his own admission was not a very religious person, said, I thought that was a good motto to live by. So he got a gold medallion and had it, had it inscribed with I am third, and he wore this. And it kind of was an inspiration to him. Now, I thought, actually, that uh, I have a return to make this week. Um, but then I was told by someone else they might not take it because the back says the Lord is first, my friends are second, and I am third. So I, they may not want it back, I'm not sure. Anyway, but, um, and I can't promise you that I will do my best to do so either. Um, so when it came time to put a number on my Letterman jacket, I was a track and cross-country runner. You don't have numbers in that sport. So I chose number three because of the I am third idea. And the Lord is first, my friends are second, and I am third. And I was sincere about that desire. In fact, when I put this on there, I thought, hopefully this will help me change a little bit and not be so self-centered. And I got to tell you, though, uh, I rarely practice that. In fact, in a race, never. I mean, I was trying to get first, not third, okay? Uh, But in life, you know, with my friends or my family, I didn't remember this too often. Or if I did remember it, I didn't practice it. But I had the desire. Now, we all know the answer to the question, who is first? God's first. God is supreme. God is preeminent. But if we're honest, although we say we believe that, we often don't live that truth. On our best behavior, we profess one thing, the rest of the week, another. There's this distance in our lives between what we say we believe and how we actually live. And now you would probably say, I have no trouble with the idea of the preeminence of God, that God is first. I believe it. I agree with it. So what's our problem? I want to name two. As a society, and really you could say the American church in general, our thinking is shaped more 
by our culture's value system than by the word of God. On the front pages of our nation's newspapers and web pages, in our schools and on our TVs, there is no mention of God, no acknowledgement of him or of his preeminence. Just an assumption of mankind's presumed preeminence. Now, personally, our struggle for preeminence in every context we find ourselves gets in the way of acknowledging God as first. Satan wanted preeminence. Adam and Eve and Cain and every sinner who's ever lived struggles with this issue, trying to be God rather than bow the knee to him. A desire to occupy first place or at least be a little higher than those around us. We crack under the pressure of our pursuit. I I sincerely feel for people like Mel Gibson, who could not live the truth of the movie he made. But like it or not, we are a lot like him. We waver. But we also desire, by God's grace, for consistency between our beliefs and our lives. So how can we grasp the truth of the idea of God's preeminence in such a way that it affects not only what we profess to believe, but our, our behavior and our worldview as well. What I'd like to do is, is to address this issue of God's preeminence first theologically and ask the question, what reveals God's preeminence? And then secondly, functionally, what does it look like lived out? So first of all, what reveals God's preeminence? If you would, go to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. We're going to just look at the first phrase in this verse today. The first thing that reveals God's preeminence is God's name. In Genesis 1.1, the Hebrew name for God is Elohim. It is used 2,604 times in the Old Testament. And Elohim means to be strong or to be in front. It's, it's clearly pointing to the power and preeminence of God. Now, grammatically, it is a plural word used as if it were a singular. We see in Elohim the idea of a triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent. This, this, this idea of Elohim really points to the plural magnitude of God, the majesty of God. In fact, when you look at this verse, the word for beginning is foremost. So you could say, in the foremost was the foremost. In the beginning, at the start, God existed before all else. Now, acknowledging his preeminence is not simply a matter of of using his name. Many people, many religions use the, the generic term God. And in the process deny the deity of the Son and of the Spirit. It's acknowledging God's preeminence is about knowing the one true God in all his fullness as he has revealed himself in Scripture. The name of God in Genesis 1-1 reveals God's preeminence. But also God's word reveals his preeminence. The Bible doesn't just tell us To treat God as preeminent. The Bible shows us quite clearly that God is preeminent. The Bible is an absolutely God-centered book. 
And that seem, might seem overly simplistic to you to make that, that statement. But if you think about it, from Genesis to Revelation, the Word of God is supremely God-centered. Now, starting again at Genesis 1.1, his preeminence is shown front and center. He is before all things. He is pre-existent. And biblically, there is no question who occupies first place. Now, this, this term Elohim is used in Genesis 1 30 times. He is foremost in position, foremost in importance. And then Genesis chapter 2 uh, brings out something else. There is a new term, Yahweh Elohim. In verse 4 of chapter 2, we see the Lord God. And this term is used 11 times in chapter 2, again, giving God preeminent position. But Yahweh Elohim is translated Lord God, Yahweh or Jehovah being the proper name of the God of Israel. God's place is unquestioned from start to finish in Scripture. Let me give you just a sampling. Psalm 48.1 Great is the Lord and most worthy to be praised. Psalm 96.5 All the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Go to the last book in the New Testament, Revelation. The last book in the Bible. Go to chapter 5. At verse 12, we see a picture of many angels around the throne of God, living creatures, elders. The number of them were myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. And here is what they were saying in verse 12. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Preeminence. Verse 13. Every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And then go over to chapter 7, verse 12. The elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne of God, and they worshipped him and said, Amen, blessing and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. God's preeminence is seen clearly in his name, clearly in scripture, and clearly in God's Son. Jesus Christ is the ultimate illustration of the preeminence of God. Anyone claiming that God is preeminent and not acknowledging Jesus Christ as preeminent, as preeminent God is holding to a false confession. If we reject Jesus, we reject God. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In chapter 5, verse 23, he says, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. To the Pharisees, Jesus said in Chapter 8, verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me. 
And then in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 23, we read, No one who denies the Son has the Father. I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Go back over to Colossians 1.18. And let's look at this verse that is uh, about Jesus. Specifically verse 18. Verse 18 states that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And that he is the beginning. Pre-existent deity. That he is the firstborn from the dead. See, Jesus is at the top of the list of those who rise from the dead. Now, he was not the first one who rose from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus and others. And others arose at his crucifixion. But he has preeminence among them all. He was the first who rose from death, never to die again. You see, everyone who Jesus rose from the dead died again. This verse states that in everything, as the NIV puts it, in everything he might, come, he might have preeminence. Now, the New American Standard says that in all things, that he might come, excuse me, that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now, the, the construction of this sentence, as well as the context, points to the fact that everything does not just mean everything in my life, or everything in my family, or everything in this church, or everything in America. It means everything in the entire universe. The entire universe. That in everything, in the entire universe, he might come to have preeminence, the first place. First in rank, first in honor, first in glory, first in power. See, Jesus has preeminence over the entire universe, which he has formed as its creator and as its sustainer. Jesus also has preeminence over the church, that as the head of the church, all are subject to him. But then also in the individual lives of believers, every follower of Christ, that Jesus ought to be in our hearts and our minds superior above all others. You know, we don't make Jesus first in our lives. I heard that once, that, that you're to make Jesus first in your lives. And I believe that puts us in the driver's seat where we ought not to be. You see, God is preeminent no matter what. And it's more an idea of acknowledging a preeminence that already exists. And in fact, in the, in the New American Standard where Colossians 1.18 says that he might come to have preeminence, might even be pointing, in a sense, to the process of acknowledging God. As I think about this in my own life, if you, if you charted my life for the last 20 years or even the last 20 days, what you would see is a step forward and a, two steps back. And a step forward and three steps back. And a step forward. Just think about me using this microphone this service. How many times have I put it back on my ear? But I'm making progress. First hour didn't even touch it. Second hour it keeps falling off. But there's this process of growth as God is at work in us to will and to do his good pleasure, to conform us into the image of Christ, that more and more he would desire to show his preeminence in our lives, in our families, 
in this church and around the world. Now, we agree with these truths. Most of you here would say, well, I agree with this, but what does it look like lived out? What does it look like on a daily basis? What does practicing God's preeminence look like? John Piper said this, there is something about the jolting, shocking, all-encompassing biblical truth of God's supremacy that either makes you radically God-centered or forces you to put your head in the sand. You see, we will either become radically God-centered or we will ignore the issue altogether and go about our business as if nothing was different. See, ideally, God should be recognized and trusted as preeminent by every person he has made. But the Bible teaches clearly that there will never be a time before Jesus returns when all people will do that. Practicing the preeminence of God in a world where most people do not recognize God as an important part of their lives, let alone an important part of government or education or business or industry or art or entertainment, is a huge challenge. So what can we do to be radically God-centered? I want to share with you four, four ideas. And I want to let you know that the first two are inward disciplines. They don't shout for attention. But if they're not there, the second two won't have a leg to stand on. The first thing is to remember that God is ever-present. And he gives all things their most important meaning. God is ever-present. He gives all things their most important meaning. He is the creator and sustainer and governor of all things. And all things exist to reveal something about his infinite perfection. So we must first start in how we think. And remember, the second idea is to trust God to display his power in working all things together for good to those who love him. To trust him to do what he does. To trust him to show his power and his wisdom and his strength in working together all things for the good of those who love him. It's it's like a child trusting a parent. The child looks to the parent based upon the dependence of the child. And it's like that with us and God. We acknowledge his preeminence when we admit our great need for him. When we admit we can't do it on our own. My five-year-old, Savannah, who's been sitting through two services wonderfully, by the way, today, um, she and I love to go on bike rides around the neighborhood. Now, when Allie was her age, we also did the same thing, and we still go uh, places, but we don't, I don't uh, follow after her in the neighborhood on her bike. Michael was the same way. We would go around the neighborhood. Well, just, uh, we love to do this, and, and Savannah's riding the bike on her own, but she'll be, she'll be tooling along through the neighborhood, and we'll come to a break uh, where we have to cross a street or, or something that's different, and she'll stop her bike, and she'll say, She'll turn to me and ask, can I go? Can I go? Because she trusts my judgment. She knows that I'm not going to, you know, lead her into oncoming traffic very often. (laughs) And she 
she trusts my judgment because we've had five years of a relationship now where I have come through most of the time. Where, I, where we care for her, where she depends upon us. And she is trusting me to do for her what she cannot do for herself. Keep herself safe on the mean streets of our neighborhood. She's depending upon me to lead her. There's a third thing. And it's where the rubber meets the road in our lives. It's where things get messy. Making choices. It's the idea of making choices that reveal the supreme worth of God above all that the world values supremely. A.W. Tozier said, There is a logic behind God's claim to preeminence. That place is his by every right in earth or heaven. When we take the place that is his, the whole course of our life is out of joint. Nothing will or can restore order till our hearts make the great decision. God shall be exalted above. Now to do what Tozier wrote about means that we have to deal with our own idolatry issues. I used to wonder why the last phrase of 1 John chapter 5 said, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. I don't wonder anymore. We wage an ongoing war with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. 2 Peter 2.11 says that sinful desires wage war against our souls. That there is a battle going on even right this moment against our souls. And we often surrender. Some have just given up. I can't withstand. When Jesus occupies first place in our life, we're going to love him more than any other person or thing we're going to obey him without question jesus in john 14 15 said if you love me you're going to keep my commandments we're going to submit completely to him serving him according to his will willing to suffer if he wills it and willing even to die for him but if we make anything or anyone the center instead of jesus we are guilty of idolatry Plain and simple. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And if you're anything like me, you either allow them to be placed right in front of you again and again and again, or you place them there yourself. Like I said earlier, if you, if you chart my life, you're going to see a desire, but not always the living out of that desire. The fourth thing involves our words. It involves us verbalizing what we know to be true. It's the idea of speaking to people of God's supreme worth and sharing with them how they can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of people say, you know, I just I want to be a good example. Well, if you're only a good example and you don't share the truth of Jesus that you hold dear, they'll think you're something else. They're not going to assume that you're a believer in Christ. 
If we embrace God's preeminence, we will embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we won't embrace it just as a thing to be shared, but we will preach the gospel not just to others, but to ourselves again and again and again on a daily basis. That we all need Jesus desperately. That all people are sinners in need of a Savior. And that the Savior is the most beautiful and accurate representation of the preeminence of God. Practicing God's preeminence involves then this inward turning of all things to Him. That remembering and trusting our quiet disciplines that don't scream for attention, they're humble, they're quiet. But we know that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And so there also involves this outward acknowledgement of God's rule in both our words and our deeds. And that's where it gets risky. That's where it takes some courage. Because giving attention to God in such a way where others can actually see and hear takes courage and puts us in the line of fire of those who oppose the truth. Those who cling to the popular notion of denying God's rule in every sphere of society today. Restoring the stolen throne is risky. God above all is not easy. But it is right. He is highest. He is to be glorified and exalted and and acknowledged as first. Now I know many of you have probably memorized Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 6. I'm going to ask you, if you know it, to to say it with me now. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. See, when we acknowledge Him, we're putting Him first. Not just when things are going our way, but in trials and temptations. Every one of us is either going through a trial, just leaving a trial, or about to go into one. And whether you are contemplating, you know, what on earth you are to do next in life, or or dealing with the, the, the difficult relationship that you find yourself a part of, or just trying to survive financially, whatever the case, God is preeminent. He can be trusted. He is all satisfying. He is all sufficient. He is adequate. He's in control. He is working all things together for good to those who love him. You know, when I think of practicing God's preeminence, I think of Don Stodinger and Dwayne Liu. You don't know them. But they are humble, quiet men, both of whom came to faith in Christ later in life. Both many years my senior. They did not know each other. But both of them I count as my friend. Both of them lived expressing regrets 
regarding their younger years, their earlier lives. Both of them expressed extreme wonder and amazement at the grace of God that he would stoop to save them, that he would forgive them, that he would accept them, that he would save them, that Jesus would die for their sins. Now, both of these men were imperfect, fallible men, but they trusted a perfect, infallible God. And they displayed to me a man much younger than them, a simple acknowledgement of our Savior's preeminence. Now, heaven is richer because both men went to be with Jesus this year, recently. Don in May, Dwayne just last week. But they taught me something, and among them is this. The great moments of joy in this life are not moments of self-satisfaction. The great moments of joy in this life are moments of self-forgetfulness. Not when we are made much of, but when God is made much of. And I saw in these two men that truth walking around. Now, personally, I've already alluded to the fact that I don't live these truths as often as I want to. I'm too wrapped up in myself. But I want Jesus to have preeminence in my life. I've got a a wooden sign on my desk in my office that says, Jesus Christ is Lord. And, And I'm really good at saying Jesus is Lord. I just can't live it. And neither can you. You know, in John 5, Jesus said to a man who'd been sick for 38 years, he said, do you, do you want to get well? Do you wish to get well? Now, we can turn that question to our desire to acknowledge God's preeminence in our lives, in our families, in the church, and in every sphere of influence we find ourselves. Do you want Jesus to be first in your life? You see, we know who or what has preeminence in our life right now. I don't even need to ask the question. We know. Each one of us knows. But if we sincerely desire for God to have preeminence, God will grant and honor that desire in ways we could never dream. Sometimes painful. Sometimes joyful. Now the gap can close between our beliefs and our lives because God bridged the distance between us and him on the cross. The cross is the ultimate paradox of God's preeminence. The highest became the lowest. The preeminent one became the condemned one. And what was the result? The condemned one became the triumphant, exalted, and worshipped one. In Philippians 2, we read that God bestowed on Jesus the name which is above every name. 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is preeminence. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you and thank you for your word and we thank you that, and acknowledge before you that you are preeminent. And Lord, we don't want to try really, really hard to make ourselves act in ways that make you look preeminent. We know we can do nothing apart from you. That Without your strength, without your enabling, without your working in us and through us, nothing of eternal significance will happen. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would show yourselves to be preeminent. Show yourself to be preeminent in us and among us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we pray this morning, we pray to close this service. As, um, as Alan was mentioning earlier in regards to, to offering, sometimes we just kind of do things and we don't even think about it sometimes. There's a prayer that I believe is the supreme declaration of God's preeminence. And it's the Lord's Prayer. You see, in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, not ours. Thy kingdom come, not ours. Thy will be done, not ours. So I want to ask you to stand with me as we, as we close today, and I want to ask you to pray with me the Lord's Prayer. And then we'll be dismissed. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you soon.